This is a fairly lengthy psalm, and it's divided in two major sections as we look at the glory of God in his works and the glory of God in his words. And as a reminder, we'll just treat the works part, creation, with just a little bit of information today. Uh, There's so much that you can do here that it would be easy to spend our entire time together in just these first seven verses. So there's two quotations that help us to introduce this psalm. The first one is from the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, who uh, was not a Christian. He said, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing wonder and awe. The more often and the more seriously reflection concentrates upon them, the starry heaven above and the moral law within. The second quote is from C.S. Lewis, who says, I take this psalm to be the greatest poem in the psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And so the emphasis in the psalm is on God's revelation of himself in creation, God's revelation of himself in his word, and then our response to him based upon this revelation that he has given to us. So we're going to read this in three different sections because of its length. And so our first section is going to go through verse 6. And here's what we read is this. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So our first section is very simply the glory of his works. As David would look out into the star-filled night, especially as he watched the sun come and go, he recognized the glory of what it is that God has made. But the limited amount that David could see brought him to his knees in worship and adoration. And yet you and I know that there are many other worlds out there that David could not see and we ourselves have not yet discovered. It's one of the amazing things that I've heard in my brief foray into astronomy is that it is estimated that 95% of our universe is unknown and unknowable. Imagine that. 95% is unknown or unknowable. So the vastness of what God has created is not limited to just the heavens. They also include the earth beneath our feet, the plant and the animal worlds that are on the earth, in the skies and in the waters, the human world, the world of rocks and of crystals, worlds visible to the human eye, and worlds so small that we need special scientific equipment to even see them. Even now, on your body, are little creatures crawling around that you cannot see unless you look under an incredibly high-powered microscope. If you start itching, I understand it's okay. (laughs) World-famous biologist Edward O. Wilson claims that there are as many as 1.6 million species of fungi in the world today, 10,000 species of ants, 300,000 species of flowering plants, between 4,000 and 5,000 species of mammals, and approximately 10,000 species of 
of birds. And as numerous as all of that is, it pales into insignificance when you begin to examine the heavens, as David did, and what little he understood about the heavens that he viewed, and then begin to think about calculating the distance to the stars that you could see in light years. Well, what is a light year? David would have had no concept of a light year. David knew nothing about this, and yet he was able to look with limited visibility and see the starry, the star-filled night and see the sun come and go, and yet he was overwhelmed by the glory of the Lord. The first thing that we notice in the glory of his works is this, the heavens speak. The verse 1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. As far as we can see, east and west, north and south, and an unlimited horizon, it is a glimpse of the expanse of what God has created. As far as the eye can see, as the stars light up the night, David would look and say, what a wonderful world God has made. David lived in a day when science and the theory of evolution were not determined to prove our existence in the existence of this world apart from God. David looks under the heavens and simply sees the glory of God revealed in and through what he has created. This is very simply called natural Revelation. When you look at the world that God has made, it is to be a natural revelation of a God that exists who has made this out of His own power and with His own glory in mind. For David, the heaven speaks of the glory of God and they speak consistently and they speak continuously. They declare or they make conspicuous the work of God in creation. So David uses the term hand here figuratively. We know that God wasn't busy making things in heaven and then setting them in their place. God simply said, let it be, and it was. And in a few weeks, when we look at the expanse of what God has created, how awe-inspiring and amazing that it is, we must always remember that God simply said, let it be, and it was. God didn't work up a sweat. He didn't spend billions of years trying to figure out the plan and the locations and the proximity. God simply knows and said, let it be, and there it was. And so when David looks at what God has made, he uses it figuratively as the hand of God because you and I make things with our hands. Not so for God. Out of nothing, God spoke everything into being and it displays the glory of God. Verse 2 reads, Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And so in David's understanding and his own experience, the dawn of each new day and as the stars take their place at night, it simply reveals the glory of God. Day after day, the heavens tell us about His glory. And night after night, the heavens reveal the wisdom of God and what He created. And when we look at the expanse of what God has made, even with the naked eye, we can hear Him say, Here I am, in all of my glory, here I am. God has created this world and He has done so to reveal His own glory to the mankind that would be the crown jewel of His creation. We read in Romans 1, 
For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, all mankind, is without excuse. It is unfathomable to me for anyone to look at what God has created, especially in our modern day of science, and just think that it happened on its own. That there wasn't an intelligent design. That there wasn't a divine being who made this so. But because science and the theory of evolution has tried to eradicate God from our consciousness, and they deny that even the idea of a divine being, they simply say, well, you know, I don't know, but it's there. So we're going to spend all of our time, all of our energies, and countless of billions of dollars to try to explain how this came about apart from God. They're caught up in how it was created, not in the who of creation. And so they miss the point entirely. And what Paul emphasizes here in Romans chapter 1 is that God has made Himself clearly known and clearly visible through His creation. And we just simply have to look at it and say, wow, what an amazing God made all that I can see. David had incredibly limited knowledge. No telescopes, no space exploration, no ability to see beyond his own eye. In fact, we have telescopes orbiting in space now that are able to view billions of light years away. David had no knowledge of that. And yet what he could see with his eye was enough for him to say, what a glorious God he is. What we do know today about our world is that the distances between the sun and the moon and the earth are so precise that just a fraction of a change would make life on this earth impossible. The rotation of of the earth on its axis, and it's not level, it's tilted, and because of the tilt and the speed with which it rotates and the time it takes to go around the sun makes life on earth possible. You change the tilt, you speed it up or slow it down, and life on this planet would not exist. David didn't need that information to marvel at God's creation. He simply looked at what he could see with his eye and said, what an amazing God this is. The vastness of the universe is absolutely staggering. If you were to drive 70 miles an hour, on a roadway into space, it would take you five months to reach the moon. It would take you 150 years to reach the sun. It would take you 4,500 years to reach Neptune. And it would take you 40 million years to reach the nearest star. When you look in the sky at night, how many stars do you see? You can't count them. They are unreachable apart from space exploration, and so much of space is unexplorable because of the limitless, of the limited ability that you and I have, and yet God said, let it be, and there it was. So the heavens speak of the glory of God. Number two, and this is not a contradiction, the heavens are actually silent. Verse three, there is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. 
You don't hear the stars and the planets and the other galaxies in the universe shouting out the glory of the Lord. You don't hear anything with the naked ear because the heavens are actually silent. This natural revelation about God is universal and it transcends language. There are no words. There is no speech. There are no sounds to the human ear. And even though there are no sounds that we can hear, the heavens still speak to the glory of God. Verse 4 says, Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. That phrase, their line, is also translated as their voice, meaning the unspoken words of heaven go out into all the world so that there is no place that you can go where you could not hear the unspoken glory of God being confirmed and what you can visibly see in what God has made. Every place in this world can hear God's glory in creation being revealed even though there isn't a single sound being uttered. It's an amazing reality that while the heavens shout the glory of God, there's actually no sound coming from this heaven that we marvel at. The latter part of verse B, verse 4 says, In them, in the heavenlies, He has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of His chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run His course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now these are a little bit difficult for us to understand as a part of David's culture, but what we know about What we know today is that the earth rotates around the sun. The size of the sun absolutely dwarfs the size of the earth. But without the sun being set at the perfect distance, without the perfect filter of our atmosphere, life on this earth would not exist. We would broil from the heat of the sun. If it's just a little bit further away, we would freeze and there would be no possibility of life on earth. Every day, the sun makes its arrival from the west, and then it disappears on the horizon in the east, and there isn't anybody that is making that happen. It is just simply God's created world. David expresses the vastness of the heavens as being a tent or like a dwelling place for the sun. And just as the bridegroom makes his grand entrance in the Jewish culture from a canopy from afar, so does the sun. In an endless horizon, it shows up and it goes overhead and then it disappears in an endless horizon on the opposite side. Or just as the strong athlete runs his race, so the sun comes forth day after day, week after week, month after month, and it will continue to do so until God turns out the light and pulls the plug and recreates a perfect heaven and earth. The sun covers a daily circuit, and from the standpoint of human observation, it goes from one edge of the heavens to the other, and its heat penetrates everywhere. I wonder what David would do if he actually knew what we know today about the vastness of this universe. Could you imagine? I don't know if he would fall to his feet and cry. I don't know if he would jump and shout. I don't know what David would do, but I can promise you this. He wouldn't need it to diminish 
the glory of God that he experienced as he looked out at the heavens that God has made. It is the glory of God in his works. Number two, the glory of God in his word. Now to some, adding this section of scripture to what we just looked at about creation doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. In fact, some believe that these are two separate psalms that at some point were merged together. But as you consider the beauty of what is being said in connection to the glory of God in His works and then the glory of God in His Word, it actually makes perfectly sense. As the heavens boldly yet silently declare the glory of God into every corner and every crevice of the earth, and as the sun shines its light and gives its heat to every place upon the earth, the Word of the Lord does the same thing, but it is not silent. It speaks loud and clear. And so there's a bit of a contrast here between the silent declaration of God's glory in what He's created and the verbal glory of what God has said about Himself. So the heavens declare the glory and the majesty of God, but they do not declare His will or His plan or the plan of salvation. So where the heavens are silent, the Word speaks. What we cannot hear, being spoken from the heavens that God has made, we can hear through the Word of God that we will call our Bible. Now, you'll notice that in these next set of verses that the word LORD is in all caps. And if you remember from last time, we talked about that meaning Yahweh. It is the covenant name for God. It was a word of great reverence for the Jewish people. And so we see this consistently laid out in verses 7 through 9 as we look at the word of the Lord. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So as we look at the Word, we're going to see six titles. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these. So you need to listen well and write quick, and I'll leave them up there so you can hear them and see them and write them down. Let me give them to you here real quick. The six titles that we see about the word of the Lord, about the covenant word of Yahweh, is the law of the Lord. Probably referring to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Of, yeah, the Bible. Let her be the testimony of the Lord. The things that God has spoken to His people. The precepts of the Lord. The statues. The binding covenant that God has made with His people. The commandments of the Lord. How the people are to live. What they are to do. What they are not to do. The fear of the Lord. It is the approach of God as being holy. As being completely different. 
as being magnificent and splendid in every way. It is the judgments of the Lord. It is the decrees that God has given. It is the punishment that will come down when we disobey God's Word, when we're not in right relationship with Him. So these titles here are used synonymously to give a comprehensive emphasis of all of God's Word, everything He has said, every instruction, every avoidance, it covers absolutely everything that God has said. Now, there are slight variations in how we could explain these or how we could articulate them or apply them, but in general, what we need to understand here is that what David is doing is saying this, is that everything the Lord has said, however it could be divided, however it could be understood, it reveals the glory of the Lord and it is explained in these titles. So you and I, when we read the Word of God, we're not to pick and choose what is or isn't the Word of the Lord. We're not to arbitrarily set aside that which is difficult or inconvenient or seems unreasonable. We are to recognize that the Word of the Lord is the binding Word of Yahweh and it has a covenant attached to what God has actually said. Second Peter, we read this, verses one, chapter 1, 20 to 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one owns interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So as we would look at the created world as being a part of God's natural revelation, the Word of the Lord is God's supernatural revelation as He has spoken to the hearts of men from His very throne and has given them exactly what He wants them to say. Absolutely, there is an author's perspective and personality that gets communicated in what God has said. That's why when you read the writings of Paul and of James and of John and in the book of Hebrews, you see different styles, you see different ways of ordering things, but what we need to recognize is that regardless of who the human author was, it is the Word of God spoke from His very heart, from His very throne, given to reveal to us supernaturally who He is. We are to accept everything that God has said from cover to cover as the authoritative Word of God that is binding over all mankind. Number two, not only are there the six titles, but there are the six characteristics of the Word of God. Let me give these to you all real quickly. You can see those. And again, these are to be used synonymously, although you can use these and have slightly different variations of what they mean and slightly different ways to apply what it says. But what we want to understand here is that these terms are being used in a synonymous way. The law is perfect. You and I don't see very much in our world that is truly perfect. But the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is true. There's no falsehood in it. There's no blemish in it. The precepts or the statutes of the Lord are right, meaning that they're without error. There's not anything that would be considered incorrect. The commandment is pure. It means it's holy and it's it's without any stain or wrinkle or blemish of any kind. The fear is clean. The fear of the Lord is clean. The judgments are true and they are righteous. Collectively, what we understand from these six characteristics is that the Word of God is without error. 
There is no error in the Word of God. When you and I read two passages and we see something that appears to us to be a bit of a paradox and to use a stronger word, which I don't like to use when we're talking about the accuracy of God's Word, when we see something that appears to be a contradiction, it's not. It's our limited ability to understand the, the finite or the infinite mind of God and what He has spoken. God has given us all that we need to know, and there are some things that are very difficult for, to, for us to understand, but the basic word of the Scripture, the basic message of the Scripture, is loud and clear and easy to understand. So just as we cannot dismiss any part of God's Word as being non-authoritative, neither can we dismiss any part of God's Word as being incorrect. We use two fancy words. One is inerrancy. That means it is without error. We use another word, which is infallibility, and it's a little bit stronger, which says there cannot be any errors. Not only aren't there any, they cannot be. Because it is the authoritative Word of God given by God Himself and it reveals the glory of the Lord to us. A very familiar passage here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. Now some want to rearrange the first few words in this verse. Rather than it saying all Scripture is inspired by God, they want to say that all Scripture inspired by God is. You see the subtle difference there? If all Scripture is inspired by God, that means there's nothing in Scripture that isn't inspired. If all Scripture inspired by God is profitable for, then it means there's the possibility that something in there is not actually inspired by God. You and I must take an unequivocal stand that the Word of God is authoritative and it is without any error in it. If we can't do that, let me ask you, what are you going to pull out? Why are you going to pull it out? What are the implications of pulling that out? It's a battle that has been waged for hundreds and hundreds of years about what God has said and what did it mean and has it really changed and is it still applicable to me today? We can't get caught up in those arguments. It is authoritative and it is without Error. So there are six titles, there are six characteristics, and now we'll look at six divine effects of the Word of God. And we're going to go a little bit more slowly through these because I wanted to spend a little bit more time here. Letter A, the Word restores. The Word restores. That word restore means to turn back or to return. You know, there's a lot of popular TV shows that are on today, and they'll take a dilapidated house, or they'll take a rusted out car, and what do they do? They spend countless hours restoring that thing back to its original state. What was once a rust-filled piece of junk, or a leaky, dilapidated roof, and mold and all kinds of other disrepair has been meticulously been restored back to its original state, and we go, wow, that has been turned back into something new. It has been returned to its original state. This is what the Word of the Lord does to the soul of man. 
It restores the soul. What was stained and tarnished and ruined by sin through the Word of the Lord is restored back to Him in its original state. Think about that. Your life, your spirit, that which is despicable to God, that which was alienated from and an enemy to God through the blood of Jesus on the cross and the Word of the Lord communicated through that has restored you back to Him. This is true in the sense of conversion. We read this in 1 Peter 1.23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. The Word of God, the truth of the Gospel, the plan of redemption communicated through the written Word has restored our souls back to Him. This restoration of the soul is not only applicable to our conversion, but also after conversion, when we have strayed away, when we have sinned, when we have decided to go live life our own way, when we come to our senses and we agree with God that we are in the wrong and we pour out our heart to God and ask to be cleansed from our sin, that broken relationship, that temporary stain of sin, once it gets confessed and cleansed, restores us back into a right relationship with God. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When John wrote this, he wasn't talking to the lost world. He was talking to those who claimed to know Jesus as their Lord. If any of you confess that you don't have sin, you're a liar. But when you do sin, you have cleansing. The Word restores our soul. Letter B. The Word makes us wise. We do not possess a spiritual wisdom on our own. It's just not there. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you possess a spiritual wisdom apart from the Word of God. Now, we may possess wisdom in this world. We may be shrewd in business. We may be brilliant on a piano in the composition of music. We may possess athletic prowess that sets us apart from everybody else. But when we're talking about spiritual wisdom, you and I don't have any. Knowledge and wisdom are not the same thing. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is making the right choice based upon that knowledge. Think about it like this. You know that when you turn on your stovetop and it is a bright red thing, knowledge tells you that if I touch that, it's going to burn me, right? Well, wisdom says, don't do that because you're going to get burned. What does the fool do? Really? Will it really burn me? I don't know. It kind of feels warm. It looks hot. Let me try. Oh, yeah, bam, that burned. That got me good. Wisdom and knowledge are different. We don't possess spiritual knowledge apart from the Word of God. As we submit ourselves to the infallible, authoritative Word of God and make a commitment to live how it tells us we should, then we possess a spiritual wisdom. Wisdom is not knowing what is right. Wisdom is doing what is right. Here's how it's expressed in the book of James. 
James says, who among you is wise and understanding? That's a loaded question, I want to tell you. Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom of above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. You see, wisdom here, as James explains it, isn't what we know. It's what we do. It's how we live our lives. It's the way that we interact with one another. All of these words would be considered Christian virtues. Peaceable and gentle and reasonable and merciful. That is the byproduct of the work of the Holy Spirit in us that comes from the truth of God's Word. It is not something that we possess on our own. Neither is it something that we can produce on our own. The word of the Lord makes us wise, showing us the right way to live. Let us see. The word brings joy. Although we were separated by God for all of eternity because of our sin, we have been brought near to God by the cross of Jesus Christ. How do we know that that is true? Did we invent it? Did we just think it up? Is it a figment of our imagination? Absolutely not. It is the Word of God that although you and I were estranged from Him, we have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. What joy comes to the heart that has been saved by the grace of God? What joy comes to the life when we recognize that God has not given to me what I deserve and what I could never earn, but simply gives to me a gift of cleansing and forgiveness and right standing that will last for all of eternity, what kind of joy comes to the heart of the recipient of that great gift? Knowing God, being made righteous by God, being cleansed by God, should bring unspeakable joy to the heart of man. Not only have we been brought near to God, but we learn from our New Testament, from the Word of God, that we are actually in Christ. We know that the Holy Spirit of God is in me. What joy should come to our lives because these things are true and they've been spoken to us through His Word. He has revealed Himself to us through His Word, and His Word ought to bring us joy. The joy of salvation, the joy of forgiveness, the joy of His presence, the joy of His love. Our joy is the fruit of the Spirit, is the work of God in our life, and the result of our being transformed by the Word of God as we submit to it, as we commit to it, and as we live according to it. The Word of the Lord brings us joy. Letter D. The Word of God enlightens us. God's Word shows us the right way to live. One of the early Bible verses kids all across this country will learn in their Sunday school class 
is Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. You see, the word of God tells us who God is and how we can know Him. It tells us of our need for Him and how He has provided Himself to meet that need. It tells us of our sin and how we can be saved. It tells us how we have strayed away and how we can find forgiveness in coming back to Him. It tells us of a love that is indescribable, of a grace that is inexhaustible, of an incredible God who has displayed His glory in His created world that you and I are going to get to spend an eternity with. The Word tells us how we can find all that we need in Him. You think about walking in this world in the pitch black of night with no moon and no stars to illuminate your way and just wandering through the dark. I don't know where I'm going. I hope I don't fall into danger. I don't know what's going to come before me. And yet God's Word illuminates our path so that we know how to live, we know how to get to Him, we know how to please Him, we know how to serve Him. The Word of God shows us how to live. It enlightens us. Letter E, the Word endures. The Word will endure forever. Nothing will erase the authority of God's Word. God's Word exceeds time and culture. It's beyond age and era. Man cannot trample it down. The government cannot suppress its truth. The Word of the Lord will endure. God has spoken, and what He has said will last forever. Jesus Himself said in Matthew chapter 5, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. The Word of God will last beyond the existence of this world. It will stand until the end of time. When you and I enter into eternity, there is no more time. The Word of the Lord will endure until that time comes. There is a permanence that exists within the Word of God, and as it lasts forever, it should have a lasting presence in the lives of God's people. As it will endure We must abide in the truth of God's Word. Number seven, or excuse me, letter F. The Word is precious. I would guess that this could be amongst the most convicting words that we will read today. But the Word of God is precious. David says that it is more precious than gold, It is more precious than fine gold. It is the gold that has been refined to 99.9999% purity. And David says, your word is more precious than that. Gold was the most precious metal that existed in David's day. That's why the tabernacle was adorned with gold. That's why the temple was filled with gold. It's because... It is so precious. It represents purity and holiness, but it is incredibly valuable. A man's worth was measured by the amount of gold that he possessed. And David says that as valuable as gold is, as precious as it is, God's Word is even more so. He would go on to say that it is sweeter than honey. 
In David's day, there wasn't a lot of sweetener that you could go and get. You didn't go buy a bag of sugar. You didn't have sweet and low and splendid to choose from. If you could get your hands on a honeycomb, buddy, you were happy. Because honey was among the most sweet things you could ever get a hold of. And he says that it's God's Word is sweeter than honey as it's actually dripping from the honeycomb. It has been said that the way we treat the Word of God is the way we treat God Himself. Why don't you think about that? The way we treat the Word of God is the way we treat God Himself. I'm curious when I talk to people and I ask them when they're going through great difficulty in their life. And I say, well, are you praying about this? Oh yeah, I I pray every day. Well, what is God saying to you in His Word? Well, you know, I don't, really, I don't really read God's Word very often. I don't have a lot of time. There's a lot of stuff I don't understand. I don't read so well. But buddy, I pray. Well, it's great to pray. But praying apart from the truth of God's Word is partially fulfilling. Because God speaks to us through His Word, we speak to Him in prayer. The overwhelming, vast majority of the time, God is going to speak to you. It will be through His Word. Can He speak to you in a dream? Sure He can. Can He speak to you in a still small voice? Sure He can. But God could also send you a postcard in the mail. He can also sky right in the sky. But I'm not going to depend upon that. I'm simply going to trust that God is going to tell me what I need to know about Him in His Word. How I can trust Him. How I should submit to Him. How His presence is sufficient. How we treat the Word of God is often how we treat God Himself. We may desire great wealth, but do we desire the Word of God? We may desire delicious foods, but do we desire the Word of God? We may desire to make a name for ourselves, but do we desire the Word of God? It's a challenge to what we really value most when we talk about how we consume God's Word. You know, it's so easy to get distracted by substitutes. It's so easy to get derailed by difficulty and hardship and circumstance. But the greatest thing that we can do in our lives is to spend time with God reading His Word meditating on what it says, and then giving ourselves back to Him by verbalizing what that word means to me. If we desire the benefits of God's Word, then we must spend time in it. You think about these six divine attributes here. And when you look at that, you go, boy, I don't have a lot of joy. Are you spending time meditating on the truth of His Word? Verse 11 reads, Moreover, by the Word of God, by them your servant is warned, your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So as we think back to the first section, we're talking about the titles of God's Word. David is saying that by these things that I have described as a part of God's Word to me, 
and keeping those words, obeying them, there is great reward. Number three, or third section here, God's glory requires a response. Your servant is warned, and in doing them, there is great reward. And so as a result of that, we see David's response to what he has just told us. Verses 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors, not God's errors, mankind's errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What we see in creation and what we read in his word will do us absolutely no good if we do not relate to him properly. And this is really what David is doing in this section. As God's children, we must choose to respond according to the work of salvation in our lives. And we do so by remembering that his word is authoritative and that it is without error and that I am required to submit to it. So number one, the number one response to sin here is reveal my unknown sin. This is what David is saying. He's saying, acquit me of hidden faults, of unknown sins. And what he's talking about there is, I know that I am sinning in a way that I do not recognize. God, I'm praying that you will forgive me in the sins that I do not realize that I am committing. What David is really saying here is that he desires greater holiness in his life. He wants to be blameless. He wants to be without blemish. He wants to know that he stands before the Lord as an obedient child. And so as a part of that, he prays that God would forgive him from those unknown sins, those things done in secret, those things that he himself is not aware that is sin in his life. You know, you and I would be smart to pray that way. Just so we have a greater understanding of our need for God, And if we spend time in God's Word exposing ourselves to His law, to His precepts, to His statutes, we will begin to see those things that we did not know were sinful. I remember when I was a young Christian, I lived with fear and trepidation because this big, thick book that I was obligated to live under, holy cow, I knew I was just going to mess it up every day. And I did and I still do. But I desire greater holiness in my life. I desire for God to cleanse me from those sins that I don't yet know are sinful. We'd be wise to ask God to reveal to me those things that I'm doing that are not pleasing to you. Number two, David's response is restrain my desired sin. You know, our flesh, that unredeemed part of our soul, not our spirit, but our soul, It desires to satisfy itself. It desires to run after, embrace, and live in sin. And what David says is, I want my desire for the sinful inclination to be restrained in such a way that I am blameless before you. You know, I don't know. We don't know when David wrote this. I don't know if David wrote this before his sin with Bathsheba and then the eventual death of Uriah. I don't know if this is written after that, as he understood his propensity to desire sinful things. I don't know. But he is praying that God is going to restrain him 
from the, from the flesh that is within him that leads him astray. Do you pray that way? Do we pray that God would kill our flesh? Do we pray that we would die to ourselves and live to Him? Do we pray that our lives would become a sacrifice so that we could be holy and blameless before Him? This is what David articulates here. The last thing that David's, in David's response here is very simply, receive my prayer. These things that I have spoken, I pray that you will receive them. Look at what he says here in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth, what I say... Let the meditation of my heart, that which I dwell upon, and my inmost being, let those things be acceptable to you. My rock and my redeemer. David is praying that what he says, what he sets his life upon, is acceptable to God. You know, many times we determine how we're going to live our lives. We determine what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. Where we're going to go and where we're not going to go. I remember periods in my life where I said, I'm not doing that. Not going to happen. When we do that, we bring about God's discipline in our life. We find then that our heart is set on something other than Himself. And this is what David is saying. I want my words and the deepest desires of my heart to be pleasing to you. Well, creation is God's unspoken word to us that reveals loud and clear He is here. The Bible is God's spoken word to us that shows us who He is and how we can know Him and how we are to live our lives. He reveals His glory in both of these, and that glory requires a response from you and I And it's either going to be humble submission or it's going to be insolent rebellion. May God be pleased with the condition of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, how we give you thanks that you are a gracious and a merciful God. How we thank you that you are long-suffering. How we thank you that you don't give to us what we deserve, even in our state of rebellion. God, as we look at this world that you've created, it shouts of your glory. As we're made aware of who you are and who we are, and our need for you, and the plan of redemption and you making a way, it shouts of your glory. Father, would you you take those things that are cliche in our heart and mind and just rattle our lives in such a way that we would be reacquainted with your splendor and your glory. Father, I pray that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation, that we would live each day as a priceless gift from you, as we live submitted to you and committed to fulfilling your plans and purposes in our lives. Thank you that you have given to us your Holy Spirit to lead us in that way. Thank you that you've given to us your word that teaches and corrects and trains us. May the response of our heart today and what we've heard and what what you've confronted us with through your Spirit, may those things be pleasing to you and you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing, please?